but I uh, last week we started in Acts 22, and I told kind of the story of Paul's extended imprisonment and trial, and I was, as I was reading through Acts 27 and 28, I, uh, I essentially talked myself into going back and covering these. It's just a fascinating story. So that's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to tell you the story. Uh, it's essentially a story of a boat ride. Acts 27 and 28, almost the entire, uh, the entire two chapters is the story of a boat ride. Um, I'm going to tell you the story, and I have one, one truth that I want you to walk away with this morning, and I'm going to give you that up front, which is kind of giving away the point of the story, I realize. But this is what I want you to hold on to, and then we're going to come back around to it at the end. So here is the one truth that I want you to hold on to this morning. Do not grow weary in doing good. Do not grow weary in doing good. Have you ever grown weary in doing good? Anyone? Sure. The command. Do not grow weary in doing good. So this is the story of Paul's boat ride. If you remember, Paul had claimed his Roman citizenship and had asked for a trial in Rome. So he was put under, he was uh, accused falsely of essentially stirring an uprising of violating and desecrating uh, Jewish law. And so they were putting him on trial and he was given the option, do you want to face trial in Jerusalem uh, with the Jews or do you want to go to Rome and, and uh stand trial there. And he chose Rome. And he chose Rome in part because God had told him after he had gone to Jerusalem, I'm going to send you to Rome to share the gospel in Rome, to share my message of hope in Rome. And so uh, he, is, he is given, he is appointed an escort, a man to take him from Caesarea in Israel all the way to Rome. Uh, the man's name is Julius. Julius was a centurion, he was, which means he was over a hundred soldiers, but he was given the assignment of being the, the, the personal escort of the Apostle Paul to get him from Caesarea to Rome. Now we know that there was two other people along for the trip, uh, Aristarchus, who is a guy that we know very little about, and Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, was along for the trip, because he writes this story in the first person. We did these things. So Luke is along for the boat ride. Now, to put this in perspective, we have a little uh, map up here. Oh, wow, that's a little blurry. Anyways, so our trip starts over here at the yellow arrow and ends at the red arrow up top, which I didn't even realize this until this week, is approximately the distance if you were to hop in a canoe on the spit and you were to paddle down to Seattle, Washington, that's uh, roughly equivalent distance, actually a little further, maybe to like Portland, Oregon. This trip is an over 2,000 mile long trip uh, by boat. And our story, uh, the boat ride of Paul to stand trial in Rome, ends up taking them somewhere in the ballpark of about six months uh, to make this trip to Rome. So this isn't like a day trip, you know, that's not like a flight to Phoenix. Uh, this is this is a, a good part of a year. So the story tells us, and I'm just going to tell the story. The story tells us that they, they loaded up in Caesarea. 
they went up the coast a little bit, and they stopped in a city called Sidon. And Julius, it turns out, is, is fairly sympathetic to Paul. And so Julius says, hey, I know you've got friends that live here. Why don't you go find your friends? You can meet with them. And so Paul is given the opportunity to go find the believers there, share with the believers, encourage the believers. All right, everyone back on the boat. The cruise ship is departing. And so they load back up. And then they continue on, and they go around the island of Cyprus over here to Lycia. And in Lycia, they are reloaded onto a much larger ship, an Alexandrian ship. And the story tells us that there were 276 passengers on this ship, plus cargo. This is a big boat going on a very long trip. So, everyone's loaded up. They have their cargo, including... Uh, we don't actually know exactly how many, but there was a chunk of these passengers that were prisoners who were being taken to Rome to stand trial. So they, uh, they leave uh, the city of Myra and Lycia. They leave, they head out, and the wind dies. So the wind completely stopped. And so if you're in a sailboat out in the sea and there's no wind... You're just on a raft, basically. And so the story tells us that they essentially just hung out there for days after days, not getting anywhere. They have finally arrived at the island of Crete, uh, which is there in the, the center of the picture. They arrive at the island of Crete, but it says so much time has passed by that Paul goes to the, the ship's pilot and to Julius, his his escort, the Roman guy. He says, listen, guys, uh, so much time has passed. We are, we are beyond time to be sailing any further. Uh, it, was, it was already, in fact, Paul says, it's already past the Day of Atonement, which means it would have been late September, October. And Paul says to them, we should not continue on this journey. We're already headed into winter, and the weather is, could potentially become uh, really bad. In fact, he says... If you continue on this trip, not only are you going to lose your cargo, uh, you're going to lose your ship and you're going to lose your passengers if you continue on this trip. And it says that uh, Julius the Centurion and Pilate consulted, took a vote with the crew, and the crew said, now we think we can make it, but we're not going to try to go all the way. What we're going to try to do is get to a better harbor at the end of the island of Crete, the city of Phoenix. Because they were in fair havens and it was not a good harbor, the story tells us. So we're just going to go a little bit further until we can find good harbor and then we will spend the winter in the city of Phoenix. So, sure enough, uh, a southerly wind, it's amazing the details in the story, it says a southerly wind came up. So it's coming up off the south side of the island. And uh, the pilot of the ship says, this is perfect. We can make it down to the end of the island. So they cut loose the anchors, hoist the sail, and they start heading down the island, and then the weather switches. Uh, it says that the wind switched directions and started coming off of the island from the northeast and began to pick up in speed very quickly. In fact, the, the, the story in Acts says that there was a name given to that particular weather system because it was notorious. 
I would tell you the name, but I cannot pronounce it, but it has a name. So uh, if you were in Boston, it would be a nor'easter, right? Isn't that correct? Boston, no. I think we would call it a nor'easter. It's coming from the northeast. So the wind comes down and pushes them off of the coast of the island out into the open sea again. And they realize uh, this is only going to get worse. And it says that they're being pushed along by the wind. And there's a little tiny island off of Crete called Clouda. It says that as they came along the island of Clouda, there was enough of a reprieve that they were able to take the essentially the passenger skiff that they tow along with them to go to and from shore. They were able to pull that and get it up onto the deck of the boat because in rough weather, you don't want that thing bouncing against your boat, right? So they pull it up, they get it tied down onto the boat, they pull the sails down, and they just start being driven by the storm. It says that they were driven by the storm for day after day after day after day for two weeks, having no idea where the storm is taking them. Uh, their sails are down, 276 people on board, says that they initially they threw uh, all of their cargo overboard to try to lighten the load of the ship and then they started throwing their own personal gear overboard to further lighten the load of the ship. <coughs> For two weeks they are being driven. In fact, uh, Luke tells us that they, they did not see the sun, the moon, or the stars. For two weeks of the storm cover. At the end of two weeks, they have no idea where their boat is. It's late at night one night, and remember, there's a guy, even up, actually up until even in the last century, there's a guy whose job is to lower the line down with the weight on the bottom. See how deep the water is, right? Every so often, he lowers the line down and realizes, oh, we're only in 20 fathoms. A little bit later, does another check. Oh, we're in 15 fathoms. We must be coming towards some kind of land. Well, Paul had just, before this, had said, actually just the night before this, he said to them, I really wish you guys had listened to me. It was God who had revealed to me that this storm was going to be really bad. However, I have some good news. Um, the God that I serve sent an angel last night to tell me that we're going to be okay. Uh, in fact, he reminded me that he still has a plan for me to go to Rome and preach the gospel. He also granted my request that none of you would die along the way, which is pretty nice. Also, this ship is going to be destroyed on an island, so that's a small detail. And then Paul says that Paul uh, encouraged all of the crew who had not eaten for many days. He encouraged all of them, in light of this news, uh, we should have a meal together. So Paul took bread and food, broke the bread in the presence of the crew, thanked God. This is 14 days into the storm. Thanks God for the, uh, God's protection, for protecting the crew. And uh, it says that the, the, the crew became cheerful again. Maybe this guy 
who predicted this storm is correct in predicting that we will survive this storm. They break bread. They realize they're in shallow water. He says that they cast four anchors off of the stern of the boat to keep them from going dry on the, whatever this land is. Then the crew of the boat, who is not quite as confident in Paul's prediction, says that they took the skiff, passenger boat, they lowered it into the water, and they told everyone on the boat, we need to check some stuff on the, the bow of the ship. And it says that their plan was to paddle away and abandon the ship because they were pretty sure that this ship was going to be destroyed or whatever land this was. And Paul stops them and says, listen, uh, what God has promised me is that everyone aboard this ship will survive. If you get off of this ship, you will not survive. You will not make it to shore. Keep in mind, this is happening in the middle of the night, so it's dark. They deliberate a little bit. Do we trust this guy? No, he's been right so far. All right, let's believe him. And it says that they, they, they cut loose their skiff, and it's carried away by the wind. Next morning, the sun comes out, and they can see land. They have no idea what land it is, but they can see that there is a bay with a nice beach inside the bay. And so they say, okay, let's loose the anchors and let's head inside this bay and land a boat and figure out where we're at. They cut the anchors, they head into the bay, and smash right into a reef. Right, it says that the bow was so lodged on the reef there was no way that they were going to be able to pull it off. Waves are still rolling in and pretty soon the stern of the boat is bouncing on the reef. And you know what that does over time, right? The ship starts to come apart at the seams as the stern of the boat just continues bouncing. So the soldiers, like any good soldier would do, said, well, I guess we better kill all the prisoners because we don't want them them escaping and swimming to shore and getting away. And Julius, Paul's escort, goes to the cohort and says, okay, plan B, let's not kill all the prisoners and let's see if we can make it to shore. So they tell everyone, if you can swim, I want you to swim to shore. If you can't swim, we'll get you some planks or floaties, and you can do your best and get to shore. And it says, the story tells us that everyone made it to shore. All 276 people on the boat, there they are, standing on shore, no idea where they are, and the locals came out and greeted them very warmly, It's the story tells us. Fancy meeting you here. In fact, it says that they invited them in, and to help this very large group of people get warm, they made a fire. They're all gathered around the fire. Paul, the apostle, the good guy that he is, he thinks, I, I should probably help stoke this fire a little bit. He goes off to find some more firewood. He's picking up firewood, and out of the firewood comes a snake, a viper. 
bites his hand. In fact, it says it locked onto Paul's hand. Paul took it off, continues to gather firewood for the fire. And the locals start whispering to each other, you know, this man's a prisoner. Uh, we would guess that the gods were trying for the sake of justice to kill him in the ocean. And because that didn't work, now they're going to kill him with a snake. So it says that they stood watching and waiting for Paul's hand to swell and for him to keel over dead. They were waiting. Nothing happened. So they changed their minds. They said, this guy must be a god of some kind. But he was not killed by this fiber. They run and they find a guy named Publius, which is also a name that we haven't used yet, but plan to children. Publius is a big property owner. He's kind of like an unofficial leader of this island, which, as it turns out, is uh, Malta, this little tiny island off of Sicily, off of Italy. Paul meets uh, Publius. They're invited in. Finds out that the father of Publius is very sick. Paul says, can I, can I meet him? So he's taken in to, to meet with this guy's father, this man's father. And Paul prays for him. And he is healed. He's restored. Well, this is a very small island. And so news travels fast. And more people from the island start showing up. Would you be willing to, to ask your God that I would be healed? The story tells us that Paul spent the next three months on the island of Malta through the harshest months of winter ministering on the island of Malta. Once the weather, the winter weather had subsided, they load up again in another ship. They uh, make it to the mainland. It was another stop for three days, they go a little further up the mainland, another stop for seven days, and then finally on to Rome. And in each of those stops, there's this line, which I love, it says, and Paul found some brethren there. And in each of the stops, Julius, being the kind Roman that he is, has given Paul some freedom, right? In each of the stops, Paul leaves the boat and searches out to see if there's any there that he can Courage and equip during his brief stay. And then, of course, we ended the story last week. Paul lands in Rome, given a limited amount of freedom, and awaiting trial, he spends the next two years there in Rome, under semi-house arrest, encouraging the believers and strengthening the church. To be honest, Reading the story of Paul is just crazy. This guy was, this guy just never stopped. And I've read these stories before. I find myself again reading the story of Paul and his, his commitment to fulfill his calling, his mission, 
that was that was unimpeded by these crazy circumstances. We actually know from Paul's own retelling, this wasn't the first time he was even shipwrecked. This had become sort of a normal set of affairs for him. Because remember, again, he had gone on multiple journeys around the known world at that time, sharing the gospel as he went, which included multiple shipwrecks. Do not grow weary in doing good. 2 Thessalonians 3.13 That's for you, brethren. Brethren, meaning family of God. But as for you, do not grow weary in doing good. Do not grow weary in doing good. When you lose all control over your future, when you lose all control of your fate, do not grow weary in doing good. When you are falsely accused and your character is maligned, do not grow weary in doing good. When it seems that those who oppose God are winning, are getting their way, do not grow weary in doing good. When no one will listen what you have to say, do not grow weary in doing good. When you are shipwrecked and snake bit, do not grow weary in doing good. Here's the, here's the heart of this. When I choose, in the middle of these circumstances, when I make a commitment, a hard commitment, to not grow weary doing good, I'm not saying that I am okay with what's happening around me, that I agree with what's happening around me, or that I'm in support of these decisions that are being made that affect me. What I'm saying is that today, is yet again another opportunity that has not been diminished in the slightest to join with God in what God is doing right here and right now. And that no matter what is happening around me, no one can rob me of the opportunity to join God in his good purposes. No one has that power. Do not grow weary in doing good. The world, just say, for example, hypothetically, was shut down by a pandemic. Do not grow weary in doing good. When chaos unfolds in our world, when confusion seems to, to win the day, do not grow weary. You're struggling in relationships, maybe your most intimate relationships. Do not grow weary in doing good. I'm going to end with this. Two quick pro tips to avoid the weariness of doing good. 
first one is this. Look ahead. Revelation 6, 9. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Not lose heart, because in due time, you understand that in due time, Aaron Weiser is going to stand face to face before the resurrected Christ at a future time. And the reward of what he offers me at that point, Paul says this repeatedly, will make any sacrifice or pain that I experience getting to that point seem unworthy of that moment. Paul says, in order to not grow weary in doing good, think ahead. Remind yourself where this is all headed. And then secondly, to not grow weary in doing good, look back. Hebrews 12.3 For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. Who's he talking about? Jesus. That you will not grow weary. Consider him. So, looking ahead to a future meeting, a future face-to-face conversation with Jesus, and looking back at the example of how he responded. Look back to the crucified Christ who did good by you at such a great cost. The writer of Hebrews says, so that, and looking back, at his example, he would not grow. That he would not. And we will stop. Not.